Father God, we thank you for the opportunity that is ours to continue our study in the Gospel of Luke. We pray, Father, that as we look at your Gospel, that you would, as you have in the past and will in the future, that you would impart biblical truth to us, that we may know how to rightly believe about you, about your word, about the world that you have created. Father, guide our time, allow it to be profitable, allow my words to be accurate, and if I say things that are incorrect, give us wisdom to ignore that. We want to be changed by your truth. Guide us, we ask, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Nak foige. That was the original title. It means discipleship. It was the original title of The Cost of Discipleship, written in 1937 by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Some of you undoubtedly have read The Cost of Discipleship. If you haven't, I would recommend it to you. It was written by a Lutheran pastor in Germany during the height of Nazi Germany and the World War II events. It's a loose translation of the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, as you know, was part of the Confessing Church. The Confessing Church was a minuscule part of the church in Germany that had the courage to stand up while living in Germany against the Nazi regime and against Adolf Hitler. Because of that, as you can imagine, the price paid by many leaders of the confessing church was very great. Now, if you read the cost of discipleship, it's all about the difference between cheap grace and costly grace. Cheap grace is all about a church that doesn't bother with repentance but only has confession. It's all about a church that in communion gives the elements out without confession leading to repentance. It's all about a church that is concerned with membership but not discipleship and not discipline. Cheap grace is all about feeling good about one's relationship with others horizontally and not concerning enough about one's relationship vertically with the Lord. Cheap grace is parroting a sinner's prayer, and yet no transformation in one's life. You can imagine for someone like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was part of the confessing church, who was literally a man who would lose his life for the sake of the gospel, cheap grace was anathema. Cheap grace is not what God desires for any of us. As you know, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was part of a plot to take the life of Adolf Hitler, joining six officers of the Nazi regime. They attempted to assassinate Adolf Hitler. They failed. And for his part, he was arrested. He was taken to eastern Bavaria on the Czech border to a camp called Flossenburg. 
Now, if you're familiar with Flossenburg, you know that it was a camp that was all about taking the slaves and using them to further the advancement of the Nazi regime. It actually had a large granite quarry in the midst of it, and the slave prisoners were required to quarry the rock for the Nazi regime. Later on, this particular camp was also used to create air parts for airplanes. But there's another part of Flossenburg that perhaps is not well known. It was a special camp. <coughs> special for special prisoners. Those who were so designated special prisoners were enemies of the state, particularly they were enemies of Adolf Hitler. And those who were part of the special part of the camp of Flossenburg were not so much slaves in terms of servants. They were tortured, they were beaten, they were brutalized. And you know that a day before Flossenburg was liberated by the Allies, the day was April 9th, 1945, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was hung as a martyr for the faith of Jesus Christ. He didn't have cheap grace. He had costly grace. He lived out the grace of Jesus Christ. He was less concerned with the small k kingdom of Dietrich Bonhoeffer and much more concerned with the large k kingdom of God. I'm thankful that like many of you, Dietrich lived his life out for the Lord. And we can only imagine how great will be his reward. As you and I think of cheap grace versus costly grace, I want to read today's text to us. It's from Luke chapter 14. I'm going to read verses 25 to 33. Now great crowds accompanied him, the him being Christ. And he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me, and does not hate, the Greek word say, does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him. They will say this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet whom who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciples. In my opinion, biblical texts like this are exactly why you and I ought to go through expositionally through books of the Bible and large passages of Scripture. Let's be honest, if we were preaching topically or teaching topically, we'd probably skip this passage. 
Who wants to be told three different times, you cannot be my disciple if you are not accomplishing certain aspects? Who wants to hear that three times in a row? And yet as we preach and teach exegetically, expositionally, through passages of Scripture, we come across many of the hard sayings of Christ. This, of course, is one of those hard sayings. Let's be honest. The text feels a little bit offensive, doesn't it? We like to talk about God as a God of love, but not a God that has hate or calls us to hate. It was interesting. uh, For the Evangelical Free Church, I travel four times a year. And last week, I was in San Diego, toughing it for the Jesus Christ. And while I was there, I caught the servants, the sermon on Saturday night at a church that I frequent when I go to San Diego. And they were talking about the wrath of God. And the preacher, somebody I know, was sharing how they've been talking about the wrath of God for a couple weeks. And he mentioned in the sermon that he had received a flood of emails The implication is he had never talked about the wrath of God in church before, and his church was unaccustomed to the topic that God, a righteous God, also has wrath poured out upon the sin of the world. Well, that's someone who hears only part of Scripture without the totality of Scripture. And the totality of Scripture talks about the wrath of God. In fact, it talks about the hate of Christ's followers towards certain things. And this text, inexplicably, surprisingly, tells us that we need to hate our father and our mother, our wife, our children, our brothers, our sisters, and even ourselves. And if we do not do so, we cannot be God's disciples. Now, I don't know how that strikes you, but to me, it causes me to stand up and be a bit surprised. It causes the hair on the back of my neck to stand up, my blood pressure to rise. I don't really expect that Jesus Christ will tell me to hate my father and mother, my wife, my children, my brothers, my sisters, and even myself, and if I don't do so... I cannot be his disciple. But not only is Jesus trying to get my attention, he's trying to get the attention of those of his original audience. Now, chronologically, we have to understand that Jesus is about halfway through his three to three and a half year public ministry cycle. He's probably around month 18 to month 20, somewhere in that. Quite frankly, things are going well. The crowds are getting thick. The populace is catching on. If we were in Washington, D.C., the place would be filled, right? Lots of people are coming to hear Jesus. The publicist is happy. The speechwriter is elated. This is the time when the crowds are getting thick. There are rumors that are actually true that this Jesus might be the Messiah. 
The crowds are coming. I mean, he's much better than a trickster because everything Jesus does is miraculous and it's not a trick, it's reality. And his teaching is so sublime, it's so powerful. He's holding the audiences. He's enraptured with the kingdom of God and it's catching on. This is the time, if you ask me, for Jesus to offer a few feel-good messages. Maybe this is the time to talk about the love of God. And the love of God is a biblical topic. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Love is a communicable, it's a transferable attribute of God. And because you and I are loved by God, the second greatest commandment is that we love our neighbor as ourselves. We are to be lovers of others. That would be a great text right now for Jesus to talk on one of the love texts that would enrapture the crowd. Or maybe this is a good time to talk about grace or forgiveness or mercy. Grace is getting what we don't deserve. It's the incredible offer of eternal life for all who would place their faith in Jesus Christ and the forgiveness that Christ offers through the cross and the incredible mercy extended to sinners like us. That would be a great time for a message like that. Or maybe he ought to preach out of Hebrews 13 verse 5 that I will never leave you, I will never forsake you. Eternal security preaches. We like that stuff. It's biblically true and it makes us feel good. That's what Jesus' sermon writers, his publicists, his handlers would have liked. But that's not what Jesus does. When the crowds are getting thick, Jesus looks out and he's disturbed because he sees a lot of cheap grace rather than costly grace. He sees that people are coming for messianic Medicare, they're coming for celestial benefits. They're coming for handouts. They're coming for the gravy train. They're coming because Jesus is feeding them. And Jesus is a bit disturbed. Typical is the text in John chapter 6. You remember John chapter 6, don't you? John chapter 6 is that time when Jesus is preaching and there's 5,000 men. We assume that many of them are married and that they have a few offspring. So probably it's not an overestimation to assume that 20,000 people have come to hear Jesus preach. And Jesus is waxing eloquent. And you think like Ken Moberg is long-winded? You should have heard Jesus. He's going on and on and on and on. And the bellies are grumbling, and there isn't a McDonald's or Taco Bell in sight. And people are hungry, and so Jesus says, you know what? We need a big-time picnic for these 20,000. I want you to go out among the crowds and see what we've got among the people. But the people were ill-prepared. They didn't expect one of these long-winded sermons. And so what they find is one boy with five barley loaves, the word barley is the word used for the most untasty, most invaluable 
food that's fodder for animals. It's, it's not really fit for human consumption. Five barley loaves and two small sardines. That's all we've got. And Jesus embarrasses the disciples. I think it's like one of his pastimes. And he embarrasses the disciples by lifting up the five barley loaves and two fish and thanking God for them. Nobody would thank God for this stuff. And yet Jesus thanks God for the meal. I mean, nobody's even getting a half a bite out of five barley loaves and two sardines. There's 20,000 people and Jesus thanks God for it. And he breaks it and he breaks it and he breaks it and he breaks it and everyone eats their fill. And there's enough left over for 12 baskets so that each disciple can carry a basket reminding them of their lack of faith. And this is a great moment. The crowds are enraptured with what Jesus has done, another great miracle after a tremendous sermon. This is the time to, to, to solidify the kingdom. And what does Jesus do? Verse 26. Truly, truly, verily, verily, amen, amen. I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. In other words, you're seeking me because of cheap grace rather than costly grace. You're seeking me because of social benefits. You're seeking me because I've entertained you not to worship me. It's all about the gravy train. And you remember what Jesus said in verse 66. After this, this is what the text says, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. I doubt his publicist was happy. I doubt his handlers were happy. I doubt his sermon writers were happy. He had the crowd and then he drove them away by talking about cheap grace and their lack of commitment. I trust we don't have cheap grace today. I trust that for many here today it's costly grace. But cheap grace looks something like this. Lord, I'll follow you as long as my health is good. And my wealth continues. Lord, I'll follow you as long as my family is well, my marriage is thriving, my children are obedient. Lord, I'll follow you if, and then we fill in the blank of what we want God to do for us. And if God doesn't do it for us, then our attention to God wanes and waxes and we're less enamored with his God. Sometimes, sometimes we even feel the right to be disappointed with God, disenchanted with God, angry towards God. Now before I sound judgmental, I want to admit that I've been disappointed and angry and disenchanted with God at various times in my life. That's because I'm a sinner. That's not because I'm godly. I think it is sinful to be disappointed with God, disappointed with God, angry with God. And yet it is the part and parcel of humanity. From time to time, we become disappointed, disenchanted, 
even angry at God. In the summer, to start off the summer, we're going to look at the book of Habakkuk. And Habakkuk is a prophet. He should know better. A pastor should know better. A church attender should know better. But we have a prophet, Habakkuk, who is angry with God, disappointed with God, disillusioned with God, disenchanted with God. And we're going to see how he handled it. But it's easy for that to happen, isn't it? And yet when I'm angry with God, disenchanted with God, disillusioned with God, disappointed with God, the reality is that I have failed to understand who God is and who I am. How did God ever become Jeff's debtor? How did we get to the point where God owed Jeff anything? As though I were to rub God's little bottle and he comes out like a genie and says, Good day, Jeff. You don't get one gift. You get three wishes today. How do we get to that point with God? The earth is the, wor- or the, earth is the Lord's and everything in it, everything belongs to God. Why did I deserve to be created I didn't. Why do I deserve to be sustained? I don't. Why do I deserve the sun to rise and the sun to set with regularity? I don't. Why do I deserve the Son of God, Jesus Christ, to be willed by the Father and to be willing through the Son to go to the cross so that He who knew no sin became sin for us, that through him we might become the righteousness of God. How do I deserve that? How do I deserve what Jesus said in John 14 when he said, I go to prepare a place for you. If it were not so, I would have told you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again so that where I am you may be also and you know the way. And then he goes on to say that he is the way and the truth and the life, under what possible alternative reality have I gotten to the point where I think God owes me? You see, it's easy for me to fall into cheap grace rather than costly grace. Cheap grace is believing that God is my debtor, God is my genie, that I have the right to be disappointed in disillusioned and angry with God. The costly grace is when I place the kingdom K of God above the little kingdom J of Jeff. These truths help explain what Jesus meant when he said the following in verses 26 and 27. He said, if anyone comes to me, And does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yea, even his own life. He cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. We have to understand that Jesus is using a grammatical clause known to scholars, grammarians, as the greater to the lesser. What he is saying is this compared to the great love that we are to have for God, 
in comparison to that great love, we are to almost be in a state of hate towards his creation. That's the greater to the lesser. Let me illustrate it from Genesis 29, 30 and 31. There we read something rather remarkable, something sad. We read, Jacob loved Rachel and hated, Sana is the Hebrew word, hated Leah. But that's not how my ESV reads. That's how the Hebrew text reads, but my ESV says this. Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. I think my ESV has captured what the text is actually saying. It's not a literal wooden translation, but it's captured it. It's captured the from the greater to the lesser compared to the greater love for God compared to my hate for humanity. There ought to be such a separation. Now, this isn't a hatred that is filled with anger. This isn't a hatred that is filled with bitterness. No, 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 no. In fact, the truth is we are commanded to love, aren't we? But compared to our love for God, the love for humanity pales. Now, I look at this and I say, well, it tells me to, to hate my wife. But Ephesians 5, 25 says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for it. In fact, it tells me four times to love my wife. Titus 2, 4 and following tells mature women to teach immature women how to love their husbands. And it's natural to love our children. The Bible is all over loving. But what it really means to hate it means compared to my great love for God, everything else pales in comparison. This is the greatest commandment of Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven: to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your mind. That's the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it under the, fir uh, under the first, love your neighbor as yourself. Let's face it. If Jesus had come and said, Jeff, I want you to love me more than you love the winters in January in Wausau, that would have no effect whatsoever. Because I'm not really all that fond of winter in January. If he had come to me and said, Jeff, I want you to love me more than you love the Red Sox, easy peasy, the evil empire in Boston, I disdain. The only two teams I like less are the Vikings and the Bears. Different sports, same hate. <laughs> if he had come to me and said, Jeff, I want you to love me more than you love Brussels sprouts or taxes or the opera, that wouldn't have had any impact whatsoever. But when he comes to me and says, I want you to love me more than you love Betty Ann, more than you love Kalina, and Ryan, and Sandy, and Isaiah, and Hannah. More than your mom, and your dad, and your two sisters, and their husbands. He's got my attention. And again, it's a grammatical from the greater to the lesser. The text is really not saying that I should have a loathing 
towards these individuals. In fact, I'm commanded time and again to love them. But my love for what is temporal must be so low compared to my love for what is eternal. That's what God is commanding me to do. What might this look like? Well, to love God is to love his word. And to love his word is to obey his word. In the connect, grow, go, it's to follow many of the commands of grow that maybe I don't really want to follow. It's to be morally pure. We're commanded that way, aren't we? In 2 Corinthians, or 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 18, and Ephesians 5, 3, it says, let there not even be a hint of immorality among you. To love God's commands to grow is to love God more than teeny bits of, of gossip and slander in which we're commanded in 2 Corinthians 12, 20 and James 4, 11, not to peddle slander with others. Or to love God more is to guard my mouth. Ephesians 4, 29 says, let not even an unwholesome word proceed from your mouth. And Psalm 34 talks about it as well. To love God is to love him with the first fruits of my income. 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. To love God is to love him with my time. So 1 Thessalonians 5, 17 says that we are to pray without ceasing. To love God is to love his word. So 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says all scripture is inspired. It is profitable. I need it in my life. To love God is to love the fellowship of his saints. So Hebrews 10.25 says, Do not forsake the assembly of the saints as some are in the habit of doing. It's to live out the connect, grow, go. Part of the go is to, to share the love of Christ with others. 2 Corinthians 5.20 says, We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be ye reconciled to God. And I step back and say, whoa, whoa, whoa. I don't have the gift of evangelism. Not my job. Well, I may not have the gift, but it is my calling. And it's your calling as well. Why don't I want to share the gospel with others? Because they might laugh at me. They might mock me. I might mess it up. They might then associate me, me with somebody I don't want to be associated with. And yet my love for God ought to drive my life. The kingdom, capital K, of God ought to be my highest priority, and the kingdom, small k, Jeff, ought to be much lower. And so Jesus says, you cannot be my disciple. You cannot be my disciple. You cannot be my disciple unless you count the cost. And counting the cost is realizing that there is a cost. And the cost is to pour myself out for Christ. I'm thankful I know many people here that count the cost and live the cost so well. Like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the cost of discipleship is not cheap grace, it's costly. And may we live out a costly grace for God's glory and our benefit. Let's pray. Father God, one of the hard sayings of your son 
who always said what is true and right, appropriate and necessary in my life. Father, I don't want to move too fast through the text and allow it to be mere words. But Lord, we want it to be reality in our lives. To live out godly discipleship. And Father, if there's someone here today that does not know your Son as Savior, I pray that even at this moment, by faith, they would accept Jesus and say, yes, I accept Jesus, his death on the cross as the payment of my sin, his resurrection as the first fruits of salvation. Allow me to be part of the kingdom of God. And for those of us who have already accepted Christ, help us to live for the greater capital K kingdom much more than we live for the smaller, small case K self kingdom. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.